So today we're going to pick up where we left off last week in Romans chapter 8. And the points I'm going to try to make today are three points. And I'm also going to try to weave in some experience from my own life, some of my own personal testimony. Because this, this uh, Romans 5 through 8 would have to be in the top five passages that have impacted me personally in my, in my walk. So I'm, since we're going to make it through this today, uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about why that's the case. But we're going to start with no condemnation. That's going to be the first point that Paul's really going to hammer on. And then, of course, we're going to repeat the point that instead of the zombie, instead of living in death, we have the opportunity to live in life. And then we're going to go to a whole different plane about the question of how to live and we're going to talk about living for something that goes way beyond just pragmatism. And uh, I think that'll be an exciting ad. Paul hadn't really brought that up to this point. Now, I hope you've seen that Paul is using a Jewish approach in his argumentation, which is circular. The, the way the Bible really rolls things out is it, it just keeps repeating the same basic tale over and over again with new perspectives and new characters. We are being Greek, tend to be linear. We want to start and a finish and then start something new. And so we, what we tend to do is go into a book like Romans and say, well, what's he talking about here? And then, oh, now we got a new thing. What's he talking about here? And now he's a new thing. We tend to fragmentate this thing and lose the point. And you've seen that we keep repeating, 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 adding perspectives, adding characters. Well, it's not, it's not gonna, it's not gonna stop today. But what we're going to do is really culminate, I think, his first argumentation against these critics who have said, Paul is saying that we ought to sin so that grace will abound. That is what he's teaching, to which Paul labels that as slander. And, of course, he's answering to slander in the center of the world that's going to potentially destroy his ministry. He's giving an answer to that in this book. And he's really hammering away on that. Today we're going to culminate that argument. And then in the next segment, we'll move to a different question. The question of, well, so what about Jews? If if we're dead to the law now and the law is gone now, well, what about Jews? What about Israel? What about the Bible? Is it just all gone? And I suspect that was part of the objector's basic argument, his competing authorities that are saying, don't listen to Paul, listen to us. But he's spending a huge amount of time on this first one. I would deduce from that he thinks that this is the one that's the most insidious. That's why he's focusing on that. So he starts with, in chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now look at the back end of the chapter. We'll start with the end here. And look at 8.33. And I think here we're just kind of nailing down this whole setting aside of competing authorities. And he says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Now he, in chapter 5, made it very clear that when God justifies someone, it's a done thing. God's elect. God has done this on His own volition. Without any contribution from us, we just receive it. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. If God has justified us, who's going to undo that? 
What condemnation is going to overcome the justification that God has freely granted? These guys? These idiots? These Jewish authorities? They're going to undo this? Really? Who is He who condemns? There's no now condemnation. Who's He who condemns? Harkens back to the echo of where we begin all this. Look at Romans chapter 2. Remember this? You, therefore, are inexcusable, O man. This is the first introduction of these objectors, these slanderers. We find out in 2.17, indeed you are called a Jew. He has in mind here anyone who judges, but specifically in this historical context, it's these Jewish authorities. And look how this works. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. What is this judging? It's condemnation. Because this is how legalism operates. The way legalism operates is a person comes in and the first thing they do is condemn. You are not sufficient because... And you can become sufficient if you will. That's how legalism operates. It can't function without condemnation. And so you see what Paul is doing is removing the whole foundation for this legalistic approach of you must become Jewish and function under the law if you want to really be righteous. Now, I know all about this because I grew up in a very legalistic system. And there was plenty of condemnation, let me tell you. I see a lot of nods. You don't have to grow up in a legalistic religious situation to have condemnation be the center of a control system. It can be done in a secular context too. Look at political correctness. The whole thing focuses on condemnation. That's how control takes place. In my particular case, there was a very definitive set of rules. I remember one time sitting in a youth group and a guy said, you will go to hell if you wear bell-bottom pants. (laughs) Amen, huh? Maybe there will be bell-bottom pants in hell. That is a distinct possibility. But, you know, that, that, was, that was one of the rules that that guy had. Now, not everybody agreed on the rules. Different people had different rules. And I started making my break, I think, away from living under this condemnation. The very first crack, I think, for me was I was a teenager and I asked, well, why is it okay to watch movies on TV but not go to the movie theater? And they really couldn't answer the question because going to, going to the theater also would make you go to hell. This condemnation here, this is the tool that is used to control. And in the political tyrannies, you'll see the same thing. There's condemnation for those who refuse to go along with whatever the, the ruler's requirement is. The Christians of this era were condemned by the emperor because they wouldn't give the emperor worship. They said, that's blasphemy for us. It's idolatry. There's, there's something greater than you. Well, that's something that couldn't be tolerated. So they were condemned. Condemnation is the root 
of human control. And Paul is culminating his argument here. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus Christ removed all of the consequences of sin forever. Past, present, future. It's all gone. There's no more condemnation. Isn't that the best news you've ever heard? What condemnation are you still living under? Do you still have some that's left over from someone who heaped it on you? It's a lie. There isn't any. If you're in Christ Jesus, you can only heap it on yourself. You can only choose to receive it. Put yourself under it. Walk in it by your own volition. Because there's no more condemnation. Isn't that awesome? When we allow ourselves to live under condemnation from other people, what we're doing is taking ourselves out from under control of the Spirit and putting ourselves under control of the zombie. Which is point two. Meet the zombie. Well, Paul doesn't want us to live under the zombie. He wants us to live under the Spirit. In chapter 8, verse 1 through 16, the word spirit or spiritually shows up 16 times. One time per verse. Just listen to, as we go through this, listen to the spirit versus the flesh. You know, last week we saw in chapter 6 and 7 that we have this zombie living inside of us. The zombie is dead because when we were baptized into Christ, we were baptized into his death. When we were baptized into his death, our old man was killed. And we were raised to walk in newness of life. So we have a new creation living in us too. And both of these things are vying for our obedience. One of the things we get to choose is who we trust, who we follow, who we obey. We've got to obey something. And we can obey our zombie, or we can obey the Spirit. And this is an ongoing choice that we have to make. And if we go back and obey the zombie, which has been dead, I mean, it's, if we choose to raise it from the grave and live in it, then we get the same consequences that we would have gotten had we not been delivered from it. And that's one of Paul's big arguments as to why. Can you walk in this sin? Of course you can. Well, then should we? Who wants to be a zombie? No. We want to be alive. That's, that's the big part of his argument in 6 and 7. And just listen to him reiterate this now. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, the zombie, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The zombie, sin, law, they're all part of the same thing. Why law? Because law is the basis on which you get condemnation. The bell-bottom pants law. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, the zombie God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So the crazy thing is, is when we walk in the Spirit, we actually fulfill what the law was intended to do, which is to bring righteousness. And it comes through the Spirit, not through the rules. There might be an occasion where wearing bell-bottom pants would be sinful, disrespectful, unacceptable. But not in and of itself. It, It depends on 
the circumstances. It depends on what your calling is. When we go to Africa, sometimes we can't wear shorts. Is there anything sinful about shorts? No, but it can become an obstacle. It's the Spirit that matters. Verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So how do you choose the zombie? Focus on it. Not that hard to do, especially not in this world. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, how do you do that? Focus on it. You know, the Spirit's always talking to us. Uh, One of the things I've talked about before that was a huge thing for me was being able to learn to talk among this group here that's inside my head all the time. The zombie, the spirit, and me, my chooser. We've got a three-part conversation going on all the time. You know, I wish I would have thought of this zombie motif early on because I could have, put, I could have given the zombie a voice, you know, like, I want it would have been really helpful. I, I kind of had, had this dog idea that there's this, this, this dog living in me, and I would talk to it like it's a, you know, get, get down, down. I don't want to listen to you. I, don't, I like the zombie better, though. Um, but I, I got to meet my zombie. I'll talk more about that in a, in a minute. For to be carnally minded is death. Carnally minded. This is thinking about the zombie, thinking about the flesh, the world's way of doing things. It's death. It brings death. The consequences of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So again, can we walk in sin and grace will still abound? Of course we can. Uh, will the grace of God be unwound? Of course it won't. Is the selection that God made of us dependent on what He looked ahead to see what we were going to do, meaning that we ultimately controlled His decision? Of course not. God is God. He doesn't, He's not controlled by what we do. Because the carly minded is in me, it can't be subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. Verse, verse 8, so then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, So can we walk in the flesh and please God? No. You can't do that. But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Okay, So if the Spirit of God is in you, which is the case with all regenerated people, everyone who's been justified in Jesus, and not with anyone who hasn't been justified in Jesus. If you've been justified in Jesus, the Spirit's in you. The Spirit's sitting at the table as part of the conversation. The Spirit's talking to us. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not in. There's no exceptions. There's no like, oh, I accepted Christ, but in my case, I didn't get the Spirit. Or... My, and I'm glad the Spirit talks to you, but He doesn't talk to me. But Well, yeah, He does. He's there. You may not be able to hear, but He's there. He's talking. Because these two things go together. In Christ, justified by Christ, filled with the Spirit, they're all together. There's no exceptions. Verse 10, and if Christ is in you, the body's dead because of sin. How, how many times do you have to say this, right? Because it's been crucified with Christ. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So how do we get righteousness? Through the law, by reforming the zombie? Can't be done. Righteousness is an outgrowth of walking in the Spirit, which transcends all these rules. Verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and does He? 
Well, he does if you're a believer. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. So we have this mortal body with this zombie in it and with the Spirit of Christ in it. It's mortal because it's only going to hold these things together for a while. One of the salvations that we have to look forward to is the time when we're saved from having to walk around with our zombie. The, the new body will not have a zombie in it. That is the hope, our hope of glory in many respects. But that is something that's in the future. We'll actually see Paul refer to that later in, in, the, in the book. So he will give life to the mortal body. So even though we have this dead zombie in us, we can live not as the zombie, but as a resurrected person. How? Through the Spirit. Verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, the zombie. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. The rages of sin is death. That nothing changed. So, now does it sound good to sin? The beginning premise was of this was, if you could sin and quote-unquote get away with it, then of course you would. And Paul's like, why? Sin is death. Well, why? You don't understand what's going on if you say that. Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Daily. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Okay? So, you ever, ever worry about, am I really regenerated? This is one of the great verses here. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. Fear is fear of condemnation. There's no more condemnation. But you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If you have felt that inner testimony of the Spirit, that's enough. You don't have to. But if you have, that's enough. Then that's enough to say, I'm His and can't be undone. There's no condemnation that's going to separate me from that assurance. It's a phenomenal position to be in. Well, I said last week that thankfully God usually has us understand our zombie just a little at a time. Because if we had to meet it all at once, it would be too much to take. And most of the time that's the case, but I reflected on that some afterwards and I realized that that's exactly what happened to me. I got to meet my zombie in full glory and it exactly just about did me in is is what happened. It was a horrible time in my life. Now, I'm quite thankful for it. I never would choose it. Now, what happened to me is I went through a difficult circumstance. And this has happened to me a lot in my life. I'm, pro- I'm, I'm quite certain that I'm not unique in this respect. That I was under condemnation from some people. Now, most of the time when I've gone under condemnation, which I, that's happened to me even in grade school, uh, I would say there was certainly a, an extent to which I deserved it. But I, I, I don't think... I don't think I ever came to the position of really embracing what that meant. 
uh, I was very one of the one of the things some defense mechanisms. One of the defense mechanisms you have if you grow up in a legalistic background is a really excellent ability to self-justify. I think it's a necessary thing to develop just to survive. Because nobody can live under complete condemnation all the time. I mean, you just, I think you just have to escape if you can't self-justify. And so I had a very, very well-developed ability to self-justify. And I had come to know this Romans 7 in a way that I think I had come to full intellectual appreciation of it. That it's no longer I who sins, but sin in me. I had really come to understand that when I sin, it's not really the real me. It's something else that is the historical me. But what God did for me is I went under this period of condemnation. And like any other condemnation, it wasn't fair. Okay, no, Condemnation is never fair. People are not looking for your best interest when they condemn you. What, what they're looking for is to achieve a result of some kind through you. That's the way it always works. And so they pick things that are true, overemphasize them, and then try to destroy you or, or bring you into conformance. That's the way it works. Junior high girl cliques work that way. There's condemnation of some kind. Office cliques work that way. Uh, on your sports team, a clique that works that way. The, the, the boys uh, can do this thing around the cooler. I mean, there, there's, all, there's always uh, some, some way for this to happen. But in my case, what, what took place is instead of self-justifying, I recognized that although the criticism wasn't fair, Part of it was true. And I couldn't self-justify. And you know, self-justification is a, a very counterproductive thing to do. But it does work in the short run. And when I did not have that defense, I just had to admit, that's true. And the particular one that stung the most for me was an accusation that I'm arrogant. And uh, well, why are you laughing at that? <laughs> See what I have to put up with? <laughs> you know, if, if something's true, it hurts a lot more than if it's not true. If somebody calls you, if somebody calls you dragon breath, and you know that you put a peppermint strip in your mouth every 30 minutes, you just know it's not true. It doesn't bother you, probably. Uh, if, if you recognize that people have been backing up from you your whole life and you never realized that you have dragon breath, it might hurt a little more, right? Well, in this particular case, I realize that's really true. That, 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 that is true of me. I really think I'm better than other people or whatever scenario you want to have. Now, we all have some aspect of uh, controlling of some way, and my way of controlling probably looks different than yours. But the fundamental thing that we all have that our zombie wants is control of something. And this is the way we elevate ourselves. And I came face to face with it. I, I, I experienced a sort of death. I, I, went, I went through literally. I felt I was, went through like two years of grieving. Because I had to put to death this historical self I'd lived with for all these years. And I had groomed it. And I had justified it. And I had excused it and I had improved it and, and I, had, I had grown it up 
And I had to just let it die. It was very difficult. Now, I can say I'm just a whole lot better off recognizing that that's really not me. But that is not an easy thing to do. You know, that's been my dominant estate ever since I came out of the womb. So I had to go through a Job experience. You know, Job, I think, had to do the same thing. He had the same problem I did. Now, Job was way more righteous than me, okay? But still, he had never been in a circumstance, according to the book that we know, where he wasn't the smartest guy around. He had never been in a circumstance where he wasn't the richest guy around. He had not been in a circumstance where he had actually been in the wrong in that book. I actually was in the wrong, and Job wasn't even in the wrong. Job had to go through all that. And why did God want to put him all through that? The only lesson we see him learn is, I'm really vile. And I've looked at that Hebrew word. I think a better translation would be small. I'm really small. The biggest man on earth had to realize, when I compare myself to God, I'm really small. And God's like, good going, man. I knew you'd get there. You're the most awesome guy there is. I'm going to give you all this other stuff back to show them. But you already got what I wanted you to get. I wanted you to know me by faith in this life. And that's the greatest thing I could give you. I didn't want you to miss out on that. And and I got that. And boy, has it been transformative for me. And I kind of have an idea of what this choose life looks like. I certainly got out from under all these laws and rules. And man, it's a better way to live. Now, has my zombie given up? You know, do you ever see this movie, A Beautiful Mind? This guy has these three imaginary characters that he sees, and they're as clear as day to him. And in the front part of the movie, he's living with these guys, and they're real. Uh, he, he almost drowns his child because he leaves the child in the bathtub with these three imaginary characters for them to turn the bathwater off. And they don't exist. So they can't turn the bathwater off. But he's got, this, he's got this thing going on in his head where they're real. And finally he gets to the point where he says, they never age. So I know they're not real. So he just stops interacting with them. He gets sane. And he's asked later in the movie, well, do you still see them? He said, oh yeah, they're always over there. You know, they're right over there. They always kind of look at me like these droll flies, like I've betrayed them. And, but I just don't interact with them anymore. But they're still there. Well, I think that's kind of the way the zombie is when we're walking in the Spirit, it's always there. Except it's a little different because the zombie doesn't give up. The zombie's always looking for a new strategy of some kind. And the stakes just keep getting higher. The more you grow in your testimony, the more you grow in your influence with other people or your service, whatever your roles are, the greater the stakes are. And I think the zombie just tries harder. It's connected with the world and with Satan and has an agenda. I actually think my experience is a zombie gets worse, trickier. So my guard just keeps going up. Does it still get me? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, it still gets me. I've kind of learned to recognize the emotions that it uses. 
and the voice that it has. And so one of the key things is when I feel myself starting to open my mouth, when I feel this certain amount of anger in my chest, I know if I can just shut my mouth, it buys me enough time to get the zombie back in its grave. Do I always do that? No, not always. But, you know, that's one of my major... Instead of self-justification now, it's trap shutting is one of my key things. Uh, So, I... uh, Now, see, I've got all these family members here whispering to each other. So, I was going to talk about persecution next. So... The zombie, the, uh, the way to not live that way is through the Spirit. Spirit, 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 Spirit. 16 different times, Spirit. But there's this whole other level that Paul's now ready to take us to that he hadn't shown us before. Ah, uh, yeah. Pragmatically, isn't it better to walk in Spirit rather than in zombie? Uh, pragmatically, isn't it better to have life and peace instead of death? Pragmatically, isn't it better to have freedom instead of condemnation? Which is what you get if you're going to try to improve yourself through the law. Uh, Pragmatically, isn't it better to fulfill the law rather than be under the law and have it kill you? Okay, well, that's the argument to this point. But now watch what Paul does. He's going to escalate because there's something even greater. And this is our third point. We're going to go for the glory. Verse 17. And if children... So let me start with 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. We are children of God. Are. Not can be. Not might be. Are. That is a wonderful thing. And if children, then... Number one. Heirs. An heir is someone who's going to inherit something by virtue of their birth. And look what we're going to inherit. Heirs of God. Now that is an unconditional thing. We have God as our inheritance no matter how bad we screw up. That cannot be unwound. It is a phenomenal promise. There's no condemnation that can unravel the grace of God. But then there comes this twist. Because there's another inheritance that's not unconditional. And joint heirs with Christ, if. Joint heirs with Christ, if. Now, what did Christ inherit? Yeah, he started off with the whole universe being here. He's God. So what was it that Christ inherited? Well, you can see this in Philippians 2, in Hebrews. Uh, You can see that what Jesus did is he inherited the earth as a man. That's what Jesus did. Because the earth was intended to be the province ruled by humans. That's the way God created it. You can go read Genesis 1 through 3 and see it, plain as day. He put man on the earth to rule it. And I think the scripture is fairly clear that who was ruling it before, and and even is still now uh, on the throne, but inappropriately, is Satan, Lucifer. Was supposed, to be, was supposed to be taking his place by us. You can understand why he cared so much about overthrowing this 
circumstance where Adam and his race are going to take over the rulership of the earth. But that's the way it's intended. It's intended for us to be the one that are ruling it. And ruling it how? In competition with one another? Creating violence to see who gets to be the big man? No, we're supposed to be ruling it in perfect harmony with one another where each one's gift is being contributed to serve the other. That's the way it's supposed to be. And sin and death entered and created all this violence that we live under. And death. Violence and death are completely interwoven. So that's what Jesus inherited that he didn't already have. We get to reinsert ourselves into that heritage that we were intended for. But only if we do something. Look at this. And joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him that we might also be glorified together. So now we've got all these pragmatic reasons to walk in the Spirit, not the flesh. But now he escalates to a whole other reason. To go beyond just not doing something, but go to a whole other level and say, I want to not only not sin for the pragmatic reasons, I want to follow Jesus and live as He lived and suffer what He suffered because of what He gained, He's promised to me as a reward for that. Now, in my life, it just so happens that not long after I had my zombie experience, this reality came front and center to me. A guy named, now deceased named Earl Rodmacher came to our church. And he unfolded the Scripture's uniform message on this. It goes, it echoes all through the Scripture. I'd just never seen it before. And I had read all these, all these conditional passages through the lenses of the echoes of my past, which is, am I really saved or not? Am I really going to heaven or not? Am I really a child of God or not? Do I actually have the Spirit? Is the Spirit going to leave me tomorrow? I had come intellectually not to believe that, but still I'm just wrestling in my mind. And and all of a sudden it came clear that these conditional passages are basically all about this. Am I going to get this or not? And this, in this case, is not only the inheritance, the conditional inheritance here, but also the experience of life now, which is also conditional. It's conditional whether we walk in it or not. And, boy, it was just a total shift for me. It was completely life-changing. Because now instead of self-justification as my main thing, I, I, want this, I want this restoration to what I was intended to be. And, that, and that's basically marked my life ever since. So we want to be joint heirs with Christ. We're, we're heirs of God notwithstanding. Okay, that's unconditional. But we want to be joint heirs with Christ and suffer with Him. And now listen... Verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to even be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Okay, So the, this glory is if we suffer with Him. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation is agonizing, waiting for a restoration, and it comes through us as its stewards. Those of us who will be restored to that spot. For the creation was subjected to futility, the futility of sin. Not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption 
which is where we are today, into the glorious liberty, liberty from sin, into the uh, freedom of being what the world was supposed to be in the first place, of the children of God. You know, we're not going to spend eternity in heaven. Heaven's just like a, like a train station. We just go there for a while and change trains. Uh, the destination is the new earth. We're going to live here, a restored here. That's where all of life is going to be. And it's going to be restored with Jesus as King and those who suffer with Him ruling alongside. Enter into the joy of my, of my master, of your, sorry, enter into the joy of your master is going to be like the greatest reward possible. Verse 22, For we know the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. This adoption here is not adoption into the family. This adoption is like the adoption like a Susan Reeve Vassal Treaty or whatever they call that, where the king says to some loyal servant, Today I'm making you my son and I'm your father to elevate you and glorify you. That, that's, that's the notion here. So we will be restored to the position of reigning and ruling the earth. And our body will be redeemed from the zombie. For we were saved in this hope, but hope is, that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? So in other words, it's not happened yet, but because we have the Spirit, we can actually taste it a little bit. And as we walk in the Spirit, we can taste this. And you can see this. When you, we live in the Spirit, when we walk in the Spirit, a little restoration happens in our world. You can just, just kind of watch that happen in your life. Verse 26, Now likewise the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know if we should pray as we ought. So we have this glory that's before us, but suffering is not an easy thing to do. Now what kind of suffering are we talking about here? Well... If you try to be godly, you will suffer. Second Timothy says that, plain, just plain statement. And all of us have experienced this, I'm sure. But to the extent you're out of step with the culture and what the culture demands, there's a rejection that happens. You get left out. There's a social a stigma that's associated with it. And that's, that's painful. And you say, well, it's not that painful. Well, none of this is that painful compared to this. That's what Paul started off saying. None of this is worthy to be compared. But it still hurts. It still hurts to be left out. Uh, to the extent that you take a stand for truth. Let's just say even in your family. And say, you know, we need to confront Uncle Bob. He's a, he's a drunk and nobody's been willing to say it. And everybody knows that in our family, we don't talk about Uncle Bob being drunk. That's our family culture. Well, I'm trying to break that, and I want to talk about Uncle Bob because we need to help Uncle Bob. We need to put Uncle Bob ahead of, ahead of our little family secret here. Well, you will be ostracized if you break that system. There will be a pain that goes along with that because we don't do that in our family. Nobody talks about Uncle Bob. Everybody pretends everything's okay. Well, truth, once again brings pain. Well, you say, well, that's not that big a deal compared... Well, none of this is that big a deal if we can keep this perspective, but it's not easy to do. We're weak. But look, verse 26, but likewise the Spirit helps our weakness. We don't know what we should pray, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us 
with groanings which cannot be uttered. He who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So this is hard. We can't figure it out. We try to do this great thing. We get rejected. Look, there's, there's nothing you can do that four people where you're not putting yourself at risk of being taken advantage of. And just don't be surprised when it happens. There's almost no position that you can get into that's worse than entrusting yourself to someone that you know can break it. But that's just the way life works. And when it doesn't work out the way you're supposed to, you don't even know what to pray. The Spirit's there to make the difference. So we walk in the Spirit, and also the Spirit takes care of weaknesses. So we don't have to worry about how this works out. Verse 28, And we know all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. So we want to bring wholeness to this world. We want to bring restoration to this world. It's our job to do that as bringing the kingdom of God into our daily life. But is it going to work before Jesus restores all things? It's not. It's going to be frustrating and it's going to be painful. But look, God cares more about us and who we become than the results we see. He just wants us to not give up. Just keep going. Just persevere to the end. Why? Because it's necessary to be my child? No. That's totally unconditional. Because it's necessary to receive the inheritance of the adoption back into the joint heir with Christ? Yes. That's it. That glory is worth all of the suffering on top of the pragmatism. Then he talks about who brings the charge against God's elect. Who is he who condemns? And then we'll close it off with this fantastic passage, verse 35. I'll start with 34. Who is he who condemns? You know, again, we're knocking down these objectors. It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, who is at the right hand of God. Who makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? These guys? Who's condemning you trying to separate you from the love of Christ? Maybe it's your own zombie. What guilt is your zombie trying to put you on to separate you from the love of Christ? To put you under some set of rules, some penitence that you have to do? Shall tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Famine, nakedness, peril, sword. As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long, we're counted as sheep for slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, that's it. We have this amazing opportunity for us and nothing will keep God's love from enveloping us. But if we choose not to walk in it, if we choose to rather seek worldly comfort, we're we're taking all those things and putting them on the shelf. And this most amazing thing possible to be restored to everything God intended us to be We have a chance to waste that. So, can we walk in the flesh? Can we walk in sin and still go to heaven? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. 
Does that make any sense whatsoever? No. Not only is it dumb in this life, it puts at risk the thing that matters most, which is our complete and total restoration. Now, what does that look like in our daily life? It looks like whatever God's given you to do today. Whatever that is for you, not someone else. Your gifts. Your opportunity. You're sitting at a table in your head. The zombies contesting, condemning. The Spirit is leading. And what the Spirit wants you to do is the thing that leads to life. Today, glory in the future. And it is that which will completely fill our hearts. Let's do that. What the world promises is everything. What it gives is nothing. What the Bible asks us to do is give up everything. And if we do, we gain everything. Nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. God, thank you for this amazing promise and this amazing book. I pray that your love will be something that we so envelop in that when people condemn us or when we condemn ourselves, your spirit can just deflect that off and we just get totally out from under that control, out from under the control of condemnation law. And then we have in freedom the opportunity to walk in life and then as we suffer pain and persecution because we're walking in your way, We have this hope of glory that you set before us. I pray that you make it so real and tangible to us we can't imagine not following that way. In Jesus' name, amen.